You're listening to Season 7 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a weekly podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam, researching its influences, examining its themes, and discussing how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world, from 1979 to today. This is episode 7.4, Colony Collapse, and we are your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong Gundam fan, and this week we are all focused on a wealthy, ambitious businessman with a legion of loyal followers and a vision for the future of humanity whose attempt to seize control of an existing institution creates nothing but chaos for everyone involved. In Gundam. And I'm Nina, new to F91 and ready to ask the hard-hitting questions. Questions like, huh? And what? Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 633 patrons and subscribers. Thank you all, and special thanks to our newest supporters Adam K., Evan L., Necroflare, Twin Wolf, RF, Mute, Artbed Home, RXSIU, Katrien, Matthew, Jack M., Mario, Chasnable, Abracadabra, Canned Food, John, Elijah G, Fang, Cypher, Joseph W, Silleren, Morgan GL, Jeff, MMF, Fishface. I'm going to try with this one, but they didn't tell me how to say it. Agiorago, Joe A, James M, Benep, and K Mintech. You keep us Genki. Special thanks to our returning patrons, welcome back, and to those of you who recently increased your pledges. We also received a couple of books from our wishlist that I am very excited about, but they didn't come with a note. So thank you, Mystery Benefactor. There are just about two days left in our annual pin promotion. These pins are a patron exclusive. We do not sell them and we do not re-release them. The only way to get this year's pin, modeled on the F91, is to be pledging five or more US dollars per month on Sunday, November 20th at 11.59 p.m. New York time. And remember folks, due to increased production and shipping costs for the pin, this is the last year that new $5 pledges will be eligible. Starting next year, the minimum pledge for pins will be $10. Unless you join the $5 Frabo tier before this year's deadline. Anyone already pledged will get grandfathered in, will get legacy status, and so will stay eligible for pins as long as they maintain their subscription. One more reason not to let this deadline pass you by. Find details about patron benefits, photos of this year's pin, and sign up today at GundamPodcast.com Patreon. If you're listening to this episode on the weekend it came out, then this is also your last chance to submit your pitch for our contest. The deadline is the end of the day on Sunday, November 20th, 2022. Whether you're still trying to think of a good idea for a one-episode Gundam story that could have been made instead of War in the Pocket, or whether you're trying desperately to trim your submission down to meet our 300-word maximum, you have now entered the final countdown. <laughs> and if you have any questions... Be sure to check GundamPodcast.com slash Patreon for the full rules. 
One last announcement: We are taking a little time off for the holiday this coming week, and so we'll not release a new episode on November 26th. We will be back to our regular release schedule the following week. This week, we are diving into the deep end on F91 by trying to puzzle out just what exactly is happening within and around the edges of this movie. We'll be tabling important questions about the movie's characters, themes, messages, and implications, and instead focusing all of our attention on the really, really vital questions: Where is everyone? What are they doing there? And how long is it taking them to do it? Before we begin, I'd like to highlight a few team members who made major contributions to the movie's plot. The most prominent names here are Tomino Yoshiyuki, who, in addition to serving as the film's overall director, also helped write the script and drew the storyboards that translated that script into something that could be animated, and Ito Tsunehisa, the main scriptwriter. Special mention also goes to manga artist and setting advisor Nishino Kohei. Nishino was involved in story planning almost from the beginning, and he contributed various ideas throughout the production. Among other things, Nishino seems to have been behind the idea that the F91 could leave behind after images with mass. And during the June 1990 planning meeting, which I mentioned during the behind-the-scenes deep dive last week, it was Nishino who suggested the flying saucer-esque drones called bugs that are so vital to the movie's climax. To make things a little bit easier to follow, we've broken the movie up into four roughly equal parts, and we'll discuss them one by one. So now, the recap for the first part of Gundam Formula 91. It's a sunny day in the beautiful Frontier 4 colony, and the revelers enjoying Frontier Academy's student festival never suspect that while they snack on carnival food and watch bands perform, there are mobile suits cutting their way into the colony. A young woman named Cecily Fairchild, in an old-fashioned dress and sparkling earrings, reluctantly joins the beauty contest on the main stage, dragged into it by a classmate, Seabook Arno. Outside, mobile suits fire on any ships docked at the colony, while infiltrators destroy the control room. Federation personnel are caught entirely off guard by this attack from the rebel Crossbone Vanguard. Cecily wins the contest, but her speech is interrupted when a Federation mobile suit crashes into the roof of a nearby school building. Parts of the school collapse, crushing or trapping those inside. Rubble rains to the ground, and the crowd erupts in screams as they run for shelter. The pursuing Crossbone mobile suit kicks the head from the Federation MS before flying away to join its comrades. The interior of the colony is suddenly full of mobile suits dogfighting and the roar of guns and missiles. It doesn't take long before the streets are littered with bodies and the shelters are full. There are car crashes before the streets become too clogged with traffic for any kind of speed. A crossbone pilot stabs his mobile suit's lance through the torso of a defending mobile suit. Seabook finds his sister, Reese, and they go to their apartment, where each grabs emergency supplies and throws some things into a bag before they head out again. Reese makes sure to grab a framed photograph of her mother from atop the dresser. 
Cecily goes to her own home, an apartment above the bakery her father, Theo, runs. Though she calls out again and again, there's no sign of him, and she talks to the portrait of her mother on the wall while she packs a bag and changes clothes. It seems her mother abandoned them some time ago. They don't know where she is. A recording of a woman's cheerful voice plays over loudspeakers. We of the Crossbone Vanguard mean no harm to civilians. Punctuated by explosions, chaos, destruction, and death. As they run, Seabook and Reese gather up friends, neighbors, classmates, and lost children. Bertuo, Arthur, Dwight, Sam, Azuma, Cecily, Dorothy. Two little kids they find alone in the street. Somewhere, a hole has been blasted in the exterior of the colony, sucking people and air out into space. The mood of those still on the streets is scared and angry. Why wasn't the Federation prepared? Why aren't they doing more to stop this and to protect people? Through a mass of people trying to flee, Dwight leads them to a shelter his father, a local military official, told him about. It's in a museum, but there are even mobile suits fighting in the square outside. A shell casing the size of a person's head falls from the sky, striking a woman running away with her baby. She is killed instantly. Cecily dodges beam strikes to run out into the square and scoop up the baby, rejoining her group, all of them crying and running. When they arrive at their destination, a military museum, the proprietor, Roy, bursts through the doors on a tank mobile suit. It seems that Roy, intent on fighting to the death, has trashed the shelter, jammed the door to the exterior of the colony, and ruined all the supplies. The younger children shelter in the museum, while the older teens load ammunition and some of them join the tank crew. But what can a 10-year-old mobile suit do against these rebels? A single slash from a beam saber kills Roy and Arthur, and a shocked Seabook has to be pulled away from his friend's body. Dorothy hears that there's a ship waiting for refugees at Pier 24, so they all pile into a gun tank and drive in that direction. At a Federation roadblock, some soldiers order them to help with the fighting, openly discussing using the children as human shields. When the kids run, the Federation soldiers attack them, and it's only the arrival of Seabook's dad, who hit the attacking pilot with a flamethrower, that lets them get away. Mr. Arno leads them to the spaceport, where they find low hallways crowded with refugees, and a Federation mobile suit pilot who tells them the ship has already left. They keep searching, hoping to find a small spaceboat for their escape. In the very same spaceport, Theo Fairchild meets with a group of crossbone pilots, led by Lord Dorel. They are searching for Cecily. While the rest of the kids load into a spaceboat they find, Cecily runs into her father, who immediately tries to drag her off. Seabook follows after her and tries to get her away, but Theo shoots him, and then Lord Dorel arrives. He tells Cecily that they are taking her home, that the Rona family has need of her, and they will help her search for her mother. Cecily finally agrees to go with them. Bleeding heavily but still alive, Seabook rejoins the group. His dad stays behind to open the hatch for them and help a lone kid still trapped in the spaceport. The rest of them finally get away taking one parting look at their ravaged home before setting a course for nearby Frontier One colony. 
This first 24 minute section of the movie is pretty straightforward um, and just generally makes sense. This is sort of the best, um, best executed part of the movie. And I think a lot of that is it just, it plays out like an episode. It's the same length as an episode of a TV show. Uh, and it has the sort of internal consistency of one. This is a team of anime making folks who are very experienced making single episodes and here they've made a very good single episode. In many ways, it has the least sort of plot complexity of the different sections because we haven't yet introduced any other locations. We know the whole thing takes place on a single colony. Once they introduce more locations, there's always the question of, okay, which one of those locations <laughs> are we in? That's not a problem yet. Mm -hmm. And it takes place within a single day. And while there are distinct gaps, there are places where they, they cut rather abruptly and we move forward in time and suddenly something very different is happening and no explanation is given for how you get from point A to point B. For the most part, it's done in ways that don't really stand out. It's done in ways that feel like the natural language of filmmaking. Uh, for instance, one of the first of these is when the kids go from running away from the festival um, to at their apartments getting their stuff together. Mm -hmm. You can make that logical leap very easily. It doesn't stand out. She's like, oh, okay. They were running. We're cutting the unnecessary part of them running all the way home. It's a little more abrupt later on. I think the movie starts to show some of those bad tendencies that are going to become a real issue later on when... We go from Seabook getting shot to Seabook um, like being helped down the ladder into the space boat. Right. We don't see him return to the group and he is quite badly injured. Right. It's like visually implied that he passed out after he got shot. It's implied that he passed out. And then if I may be uh, excused for jumping ahead a little bit. They find the mobile suit that he was piloting later when Cecily sees the amount of blood in the pilot seat and thinks a person couldn't possibly have survived that. Mm -hmm. Like, look at all this blood. He was quite badly injured. I think they say with this amount of blood, you wouldn't be able to know whether the person was alive or dead. Her reaction seems to be on seeing that, that she thinks he's dead. You're sort of presaging one of the problems that this movie is going to consistently have, which is that the dialogue and the emotional responses don't necessarily correspond. Yeah, the... Uh, the handful of moments in this first block of the movie where I felt some confusion mostly had to do with not understanding why characters are behaving a certain way. Mm -hmm. And not just that I disagree with a motivation or course of behavior, but that I don't understand it. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's not really a plot problem. That's not an issue of how they're portraying the progression of events. That's more a, a characterization or... Uh, or dialogue or <laughs> like that's a slightly different problem yeah part of the reason I fixate on that one cut between Seabook getting shot to him being brought into the space boat um, is that the question of how Seabook gets from the gun tank to the space boat would actually tell us a lot about the characteristics of this group of friends did they notice that he was gone and go looking for him or did they just wait until he recovered and came to meet them? We don't know. But knowing that would tell us a lot about them and their relationship to him. So it would be good to know. The other problem with it is that there's sort of a, a narrative time disjunction here where they're all in the spaceboat getting ready to leave. 
And it doesn't feel like there's a big gap in that timeline. It doesn't feel like there is a moment of all of them just sort of sitting around waiting for Seabook. No, because when he does get helped down, they're all still putting kids in... Or wait, do they have... It's very easy to mix up, in retrospect, the various scenes in which they're, like, bundling kids into <laughs> normal suits inside this space boat. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, but they, they're in the process of preparing all the little kids to go. And so it doesn't seem like that process takes very long. But then we have this other scene that's playing out at the same time that involves Seabook passing out for an indeterminate length of time. Watch us get added by all the listeners who are parents of small children who are actually <laughs> like, no, it takes forever to get kids ready to go anywhere. Even so, this is like a minor example of a problem that is going to become a major problem later on. Another thing that makes this segment here at the beginning work really well is like, it explains very little about the political situation, but at the beginning of the movie, we're willing to give a movie a lot of grace on not explaining things because we assume that as the movie plays out, information will be revealed and we will come to learn what is at least important for the story. Right. The bare bones we're given amount to there is a Federation military presence here. Most of the people here have no idea who or what Crossbone Vanguard is, the military does, but clearly didn't think it was a serious threat because they were caught unprepared. And that's about it. <laughs> yeah. So to bring in some of the exterior knowledge that is not really revealed in the course of the movie, but would have been available to someone at the time. Uh, and this is pulling from a variety of sources from the F-91 novelization, from the uh, prequel manga, as well as from some uh, stuff that would have been published a little bit after the movie, like some of the official timelines. The Crossbone Vanguard is essentially the private armed wing of this big company called the Bush or Buch Concern, B-U-C-H, that is controlled by the Rona family, none of which is ever revealed in the course of this movie. Wow, yeah, I am I am a little bit mind blown over here, mouth hanging open, because... <laughs> My perception of Crossbone Vanguard and of the politics of this whole movie is very different if it's basically an arm of a megacorp mm -hmm. than if it's a more, I don't know if this even makes sense to say, but a more purely political, mm -hmm. like, neo-monarchy <laughs> thing, which is what I thought it was. So the Ronas, Mitzer Rona especially, who is the, the patriarch of the clan, but the Rona family were previously the Bush, Bush, Bush. Okay, this name was bothering me, so I had to stop and look into it a little bit more. Like I said, it's been Romanized B-U-C-H. The Japanese for the name is Buho. But I realized I've encountered a similar um, Romanization before with the MMA fighter Sakurai Hayato, whose nickname in Japanese is Maha. But when it gets Romanized, it's spelled M-A-C-H, like Mach, like speed, which is where the nickname originally comes from. So this practice of turning that C-H, K sound into the Ha or Ho sound in Japanese uh, is, is, I think, something that gets done sometimes with Germanic Eastern European words. I was going to say, I'm most familiar with that sound pattern in Yiddish words. Mm -hmm. uh, Yiddish being like a Jewish language from Eastern Europe. 
So I assume the uh, family name, B-U-C-H, is meant to be Buch and comes probably from the German word Buch, which is spelled B-U-C-H, and they are all descended from Meitzer's father, Scharnhorst Buch. Scharnhorst being the name of a German general and the name of a German warship. Anyway, Scharnhorst purchased the noble name of Rona and restyled themselves as aristocrats with political ambitions. Oh, wow. Oh, that's that's very different. Hmm. <laughs> right? Really, really changes the context of this part of the movie. Wow, the mega wealthy want to style themselves as neo-nobility? Yep. Amazing. This... <laughs> <laughs> and this bit of backstory really casts everything Meitzer says later in the movie in a totally different and very ironic light. And it feels like the kind of backstory that recontextualizes everything so much. Maybe they should have found a way to convey that to the audience. I was recently discussing with some of our patrons, or I suppose refreshing everybody on my opinion of supplementary materials, which is essentially that they're fine. I don't have a problem with supplementary materials unless they are essential for understanding or enjoying the work itself, because that, I think, shows a, a terrible flaw in the work. <laughs> a film should be relatively self-contained. And if I have to go do all this advanced reading and homework to enjoy it at all or to understand what's really happening, then that's a problem for me, from my perspective. Sure. Another difficult question with this first segment is, when is all of this happening? We know it's all happening within a single day, but like, what day? And just based on the movie, when do you think this is happening? Um, what time of year? Does it matter in a colony? <laughs> I mean, it kind of does. So I raise this issue because the official, like, published timeline says that all of this starts on March 16th, which initially should raise some yellow flags about this timeline because March 16th is the day the movie came out. And uh -huh. that's just a little too convenient. There is a tendency um, in the like quasi-official timelines for Gundam of this era to like peg events to the day when the episode that contains those events aired, <laughs> which more often than not leads to timelines that don't really make sense. And this movie is probably the best example of a timeline that just doesn't make sense. We'll come back to this as the movie progresses and we start looking at events that take place over the course of more than a single day. But just here at the beginning, the official timeline says that this all takes place in March. The movie includes a line of dialogue from Cecily saying that this is all taking place in the autumn. Huh. And this initial Thanksgiving festival, they call it a Thanksgiving festival, seems to be a hybrid of like a Japanese high school or college's culture festival. And which is in the fall. An American Thanksgiving, which is also in the fall. So the only explanation that squares those two competing pieces of evidence is that for some reason, the frontier colonies use a Southern Hemisphere yearly calendar where March is in the fall. There's no other reason to think that that might be the case, but it does square these two otherwise incompatible bits of information. That feels like such an entirely unnecessary way to complicate your narrative. <laughs> if I had to pin a season to the way it looks and feels in this first 20 minutes of the movie, I'd say late spring or early summer. Mm -hmm. And we know from previous series that there are many colonies that have seasonal weather. 
though it's also implied that those systems can break down, that they can wind up with a variety of different kinds of weather within the colony, but really just one season, like that it's not in a seasonal cycle. It's something from Earth that you wouldn't have to mimic in space if you didn't want to, and it's probably more difficult than it's worth to mimic in space. And to tie like month dates and seasons to your story when it takes place in a space colony uh, feels like an unnecessary complication. Speaking of unnecessary complications, one of the many subplots that was cut in the process of making this movie would have involved the colony's climate control systems being sabotaged by partisans. Keep having to rein myself in because I want to start talking about other aspects of the movie, but we're just talking about the plot <laughs> and the, the sort of flow and thread of plot events. All in good time. All right. Are we ready to move on to some distinctly more complicated <laughs> sets of events? You know, I think we are. Back on Frontier 4, a palace once used to house distinguished guests of the government is now the home and headquarters of the noble Rona family. And Cecily? She is their long-lost scion. Her birth name is Bera Rona. The Lord Doral, who came to find her, is her brother. Her biological father, Carozo, better known by the nom de guerre Iron Mask, is the leader of the Crossbone Vanguard. And her grandfather, Meitzer, is the family patriarch, who plans to create a new nation in space, Cosmo Babylonia, an aristocracy with Frontier Four as its capital, and the Rona family as its leaders. Cecily's mother, Nadia, rejected the family and its ideals, and ten years ago she took Cecily and fled with Theo. But Nadia has disappeared, and Theo, still loyal to Cosmo Babylonia, has helped the Ronas reclaim their own. Cecily is assigned maids and guards, dressed in a military-esque uniform, and presented to her father and grandfather. Meitzer's wish is that, until the situation stabilizes, she will serve as Cosmo Babylonia's first queen. A figurehead, a face, a beautiful young idol, someone who has lived as a common person in this very colony, and who the people will take into their hearts. Startled, she balks at the idea, and her grandfather apologizes for bringing it up so soon after their reunion. Accompanied by a crossbone officer with an eye patch, Cecily goes looking for her friends and finds the mobile suit Seabook was piloting. The seat is stained with blood, but there's no telling what happened to her friend. She cries, wondering what she should do now. The war is ongoing with skirmishes across all of Frontier's side. Seabook and his friends made it to Frontier 1 and have taken refuge on an isolated and uninhabited mountain slope, but are still not safe. Right above them, a hole is blasted in the exterior of the colony, and a Federation ship comes clumsily through, shuddering to the ground. It is the Space Ark, a training vessel that's already been stripped of its instructors, officers, and NCOs, leaving it crewed entirely by raw recruits, and with only one experimental mobile suit, the F-91. When the kids run into a Federation colonel just outside the ship, he orders them to join the crew of the Space Ark and help with the fighting, entirely unconcerned that they are kids. No one is particularly happy with the situation, 
Not the kids pressed into service, nor the soldiers, who suddenly have to contend with little children underfoot. But neither side has much choice. On the news, Earth Federation politicians declare their intention to wait until things quiet down before getting involved. Seabook takes lunch to an engineer working on the F-91. Curious, he watches the video manual and discovers that the mobile suit's biocomputer was designed by his own long-lost mother, Dr. Monica Arno. The engineer wonders if Seabook might have some insight into how the prototype works, being the designer's kid and all. But upset that his mother abandoned the family to work in weapons design, Seabook warns, don't you dare tell my sister Reese about this, and stalks off. They tell her anyway, hoping she can help them get the F-91 working. And she can, but there's no secret code or hidden tricks. The biocomputer's structure resembles a particular cat's cradle pattern, the eight-column bridge. It was their mother's specialty. But now that they can get it working, who will pilot it? Colonel Cosmo orders the kids to do it, and since Seabook's mother was involved in the design, they all seem to think he's the natural fit. Meanwhile, Cecily, or Bera, has still not accepted her grandfather's offer to become queen of Cosmo Babylonia but she has started training as a pilot under the personal instruction of Vanguard ace Zabine Sharu, the eyepatch-wearing officer who escorted her earlier. She has a feel for it and has already mastered the basics, but the special treatment afforded to the Rona princess clearly irritates some other pilots. While she practices, Crossbone Vanguard units keep up the pressure on the Federation resistance. Having scouted and cleared an entrance into the colony, Lord Doral Rona decides to exceed his orders, and scout the interior as well, passing close to the camouflaged space arc. The ship's alarms sound. They are in the midst of a rendezvous with a local resistance cell, so pilot Birgit launches in his mobile suit, intent on drawing the crossbone force away. Although he has no training, Seabook can't stand the thought that he might lose more friends, and follows in the F-91. Despite his inexperience, Seabook manages to destroy several Vanguard mobile suits, and the rest of Doral's unit is forced to retreat. Doral can't understand it. Mopping up Frontier 1 should have been child's play. Where did they get that kind of firepower? This second act of the movie also roughly corresponds to the running time of an episode of the anime. It's about 30 minutes, but it um, it doesn't have the same cohesion that the first part did. And this is where things start to get confusing. And some things that are, I think, kind of important to understanding all of what's going on and everyone's motivations are just not in the movie. The official timeline isn't super clear on how long this section takes, but uh, we know that it must start after March 16th, which is when the attack on Frontier 4 happens, and there's good reason to believe that it ends around the 23rd or 24th of March. So we're talking about one week here. Longer than I would have thought. But also, in some ways, not nearly enough time. For instance, we see at one point in this, Seabook has his arm in a sling, and Minmi, the medic aboard the Space Ark, tells him, oh, you don't need that anymore, your arm is healed enough. Um, we don't know how bad the wound that Seabook took when he got shot was. It might have been a pretty minor wound that would heal relatively fast, but he did bleed a lot 
And they make it pretty clear in those prior scenes that whatever the bullet did, it made him unable to use that arm. And so it seems very implausible to me that it would be healed in like three days. Absolutely. I, yeah, uh, <laughs> I am not a doctor. I don't know how long it takes to heal a bullet wound. You and I talked about this a bunch. It's unclear where exactly he got hit or exactly how serious it is. But we know from Cecily seeing the blood that it's at least serious enough that she wonders if he might have died. Right. And when we see him, he's having trouble moving. There's a lot of blood on his shirt. He's really struggling to get into the uh, space boat. He's either been hit in the arm, like on the inside of his bicep, or he's been hit in the ribs. But either one of those could be pretty bad. It's hard to imagine him getting hit in the ribs and not breaking something. Hard to imagine him getting hit in the arm and not, like, having some muscle damage. Or nicking the artery. Yeah. I guess the way I would put it is we don't know how bad it is, but if it was bad enough to need a sling, it's probably bad enough that it's not going to be healed within this time span. Now that we're talking about it, one plot point that seems like it could be meant to indicate the passage of time, but we don't have enough context for it to actually be helpful, is the fact that they're out scavenging for food. Mm-hmm. But... Basically, everywhere they went when they were trying to leave, food stores were gone or already destroyed. So, of course, they need food. <laughs> they left with basically no food. They probably needed food as soon as they arrived in right. Frontier One. Yeah, this is actually, like, it's a good transition here, I think, to show the kids, like, scavenging for potatoes in the fields of Frontier One. It shows us time has passed. It shows us these kids... Pitching in, working together, getting organized, doing a little like Swiss Family Robinson, boxcar children, surviving on our own kind of thing. It's a good plot element. It's a good transition. I like that part. But at the same time, this means Cecily's just been hanging around more or less <laughs> by herself for a week. And it's odd that she is having these pseudo lectures from her maid about how it's her duty to be waited upon and all of this. Like... Wouldn't that have happened when they first got her? Well, that's before the potatoes scene. So some, some amount of time passes there. But this gets back into that like narrative disjunction that I was talking about before. When we first see Cecily, she gets out of the bath. She has her hair done. She goes for a walk down the corridor to meet up with her dad. Then they cut to the big triumphal arrival of Meitzer and the big like showy parade as he arrives. And we see Iron Mask in that parade. And then after that, we see Cecily waiting in a chair for her dad to finish a meeting with Theo. So the cinematic implication is that Cecily walking through the palace and waiting for her dad and this whole ceremonial arrival take the same amount of time. I even, so I missed that Iron Mask was in that ceremonial arrival scene and I thought it was happening at the same time that the reason she hadn't been presented to her grandfather yet is because he hadn't arrived. He was elsewhere with the war effort, and that now that he's arrived, she's going to be reintroduced to him. Nope, he is in that crowd scene. Or he has a body double. <laughs> Iron Mask 2. Uh, similarly, I was not clear the first time I watched this that the Ronas had established themselves on Frontier 4. I only included that in the recap because Tom <laughs> included it in his notes for me. I didn't know that. And I yes, she does go and look at Seabook's mobile suit that he was using from before, but she could have traveled over from someplace else. They could have been on a ship. They could, you know, there are a lot of different places they could have been. 
other than Frontier 4, and it wasn't clear to me until later that that was what had happened. This is the section where it starts to get confusing keeping track of where everybody is. You can easily miss that the kids are on a different colony, and that the colony they're on is Frontier 1. You can miss that Cecily is still on Frontier 4, which is going to be called something different pretty soon. And you can definitely miss that there are two other frontier colonies, frontiers two and three, and that something happens to them during this section because it's completely off screen. It's alluded to in like one or two lines of dialogue, but during the course of this week, Crossbone Vanguard forces attack and conquer frontiers two and three. One of the points that was slightly confusing for me is that we get this warship talking about, oh, Federation forces have been pushed back to Frontier 2. Initially, not at all clear whose warship this is. Uh, I had to look at the symbol on the shoulder of one of the two officers to know, okay, that doesn't look like a Federation symbol. This must be a crossbone ship. And then later they launch crossbone mobile suits. But the fact that they're talking about Frontier 2 made me think that they were attacking Frontier 2? And, and they're not. They are. Wait. Well, they're... somebody is. Maybe... <laughs> I don't know if this is part of the attack on Frontier 2 or like a skirmish going on outside of it. Because it's from this fight that we then cut to the inside of Frontier 1 where the kids are. Right. And it's cut in such a way that you think... Oh, the fight we just saw from outside is the fight that just blasted this hole inside. <laughs> yes, that is definitely true. And probably this fight is happening proximate to Frontier 1, but as part of a campaign against Frontier 2. I'm I'm honestly not sure. But later in the segment, when uh, Doral Rona and his team come in, they're like, oh, we're not supposed to attack this place yet. We're supposed to be just like scouting because the operation against the other two colonies is still ongoing. And like, I get it. Tomino doesn't think that the big picture stuff is important for telling this particular story. And to a certain degree, I'm on the same page with him. But some of these things are important. And if the big picture stuff really weren't important, stop showing it to us. It's just clouding <laughs> the issue and making everything more confusing. So much of this story is just like gesturing at plot lines that either aren't there or don't go anywhere. Like, okay, fine. What's going on with the army attacking the other frontier colonies doesn't matter. Great. Then why are you telling me about it and making me more confused? <laughs> Why is Cecily's mom here? Oh my gosh. So I had managed to entirely forget that she appears this early in the movie. In her first appearance, there's no reason you would know that it's her. They do have Dwight comment on the space arc in an offhand single line like, oh, that woman was looking for Cecily. Cecily mentioned that her mother was missing. Hmm... And Nadia is just like running around the space arc. She doesn't make contact with the kids, even though earlier on she was like, oh, do you think there are any children from Richmond on that space arc? But well, she doesn't actually talk to them. She, I think she wants to know if there are any children from Frontier 4 on the space arc. And the other resistance fighter tells her, well, the ship came from Richmond. So if there are kids, they're probably from Richmond. Anyway. We don't see hide nor hair of Cecily's mom again until much later. And so this feels like an entirely pointless tidbit other than to indicate, yes, Cecily's mother is looking for her. 
And again, lamenting what might have been because here is a woman who left a life of wealth and luxury and privilege because she could not deal with her controlling fashy family. <laughs> she ran away with a lover. When she found out that lover was still loyal to her family, she left him too. She joins the resistance fighters when her family invades. Like, that's a cool story that we don't get in this movie. To be fair to the movie, we've been talking about many of the problems in this segment, but I do want to say the bit where we have the Federation warship concealed inside of a fake asteroid and it sneaks close to Frontier 4, the asteroid gets destroyed by early defense systems, the ship goes into full-on attack mode, and essentially attempts to assassinate the Ronas by blowing up this palace they're in. I think that's a note-perfect segment of the movie. Everything about that is good. It works so well. That section and the section that follows it, which I agree are stellar, did not make it into the recap. Sorry, folks. Uh, but as Tom described, a Federation ship shows up uh, with like a dummy asteroid to hide it, gets revealed, uh... We'll talk about the politics in more depth later, but the Federation basically decides to attack these places, even though they know there's likely to be a lot of civilians there, because they want to end this as quickly as possible. And we get a shockingly natural discussion between Cecily Berra and Meitzer about his philosophies, about what it is he's trying to achieve and why, that offers us necessary exposition for the movie. And great characterization but doesn't feel heavy-handed or, like I said, it feels natural. It makes sense that he would be explaining all of this to her now that she is a young adult and can process it more and he wants to get her on side. And that they would have this deep conversation in the early morning hours right after an attack that very nearly saw both of them die. That's the exact kind of situation where you would have this kind of conversation. It works so well. And it stands in such stark contrast to other moments in the movie when they attempt to do similar things, like the conversation earlier on between Cecily and Iron Mask, uh, when she first meets him for the audience and there's the really harsh, stark lighting. That scene feels like it's just doing exposition for the sake of doing exposition, and it doesn't work. Even I, my eyes just glaze over during that scene. And I also want to contrast that brief fight scene with the Federation warship with the scene you were talking about earlier where we see the Crossbone Vanguard like launching some mobile suits and they go out into battle. Um, because both of these are tiny little self-contained vignettes showing a little bit of the big picture of what's going on. But whereas one of them is extremely confusing, the other is extremely revealing. This little snapshot tells us a lot about what's outside of the frame, just by implication and vibes. There was one part of the earlier fight scene that felt significant in a similar way to me, but it's pretty subtle, which is at the beginning of that fight, we see crossbone mobile suits just completely obliterating Federation mobile suits on a 1v1 mobile suits dogfighting kind of field. Crossbone is winning. But then as soon as it looks like they've won, boom, another Federation battleship appears. Boom, another dozen Federation mobile suits. The Federation just has more resources to throw at this than Crossbone does, even if Crossbone's mobile suits are better. But those Federation resources are all dispersed. That's a big part of it. And we're seeing here 
the Federation trying to concentrate those forces while making these kind of like Hail Mary stabs. The Federation can afford to send a single ship and a squadron of mobile suits on what is basically a suicide mission. Yet they're clearly having a lot of trouble getting people and resources where they need them and are trying to work with local resistance forces, but clearly do not have much experience doing that and are not managing it very well. Right. And again, here's something that is kind of important and never said. This Colonel Cosmo guy. God, I cannot believe they named anybody Cosmo when the villains are Cosmo Babylonia. Why? Also, I think they get his name wrong later. (laughs) Um, Dwight calls him Cosmic in another scene. But anyway, um, so this Colonel Cosmo guy, he is a retired colonel, which tells you a lot about the state of the Federation Army and the people that they're pulling in for this war. This act of the movie also gives us the one little bit of Federation High Command and our only contact with Earth. (laughs) When we see this like janky broadcast of an interview with a Federation leader on vacation on a beach on Earth somewhere. And he's just like, oh, well, you know, it's, it's just like two drunks brawling. We'll let them tire themselves out and then we'll figure it out. So like the Federation leadership is so detached from this. Okay, we... We're straying a bit from the brief. <laughs> you're, gonna, you're right. You're right. I'm you're going to get me talking about politics now, and that's politics not what later. this is for. Plot now, politics later. The final point at which I felt untethered from time in this episode is the fight on which that section ends. Seabook launches in the F 91, and immediately everybody starts giving him for how bad he is at it. And we know from the story that the decision for him to pilot the F-91 was entirely last minute. He's jostling with one of his friends in the cockpit right before he launches about which of them is going to do this. So is it just that the adults are huge jerks and terrible? Or has he had training somehow? (laughs) No. Has has time elapsed and he's been getting trained and we just didn't see any of that? Or like what? Yeah, no. I mean... Part of the reason the official timeline doesn't make any sense here is that it's not just that these things take time and the official timeline condenses it so much, but so many things happen in here. Like, how much time passes between Seabook telling them, don't you dare tell my sister about this, and them going to Reese and being like, hey, you want to watch this video with your mom in it? Hey, maybe you can figure this out, 10-year-old. Was it like 20 minutes? Did they just wait for him to walk away? (laughs) (laughs) And then how much time needs to pass between them figuring out how to make the thing work and actually getting it running. And if Reese intended to, well, did she intend to tell them all along? And if so, why did she wait? Right. (laughs) Why did she wait until the dramatically significant moment when Cosmo is like slapping her brother around? Yeah. uh, And it's not as though her brother gives her permission, tells her, it's okay, you can tell them. She's not waiting for that. Right. But the most infamous unexplained time jump of all is about to happen. Sometime afterward, Seabook infiltrates Frontier 4, now known as Cosmo Babylon. Repairs are underway with tarps and scaffolding, work crews and machinery everywhere. The city is bedecked in Cosmo Babylonia flags. Posing as one of the construction workers, Seabook sneaks over the fence, through the palace grounds, and into the palace itself. Cecily, feeling trapped and with no one to turn to, is in the middle of chopping off her hair when Seabook finds her. Their emotional reunion is cut short, 
The staff notice him, and seconds later, guards arrive, guns drawn. Cecily throws herself in the way, and Seabook dives out the window, falling through tree branches and dodging gunfire as he disappears into the park. Meitzer arrives to investigate the commotion and notices Cecily's hair. She explains that she cut it as a symbol of her resolve, her commitment to the discipline and ideals of the Rona family. When it grows back, she will be ready to take her place as queen. The next day, the Crossbone Vanguard parades through the streets of Cosmo Babylon. Tanks, followed by soldiers in dress uniforms, marching in perfect unison, carrying streaming red and gold banners, mobile suits marching after them, a flyover of three mobile suits with beam flags overhead. Cosmo Babylonia's high officials are arrayed on a raised platform across from rows of local dignitaries in their best suits and finest dresses. And all around, the streets are crowded with locals. Iron Mask has just begun to speak about the evils of the Federation government, the crowd calling out in agreement when a sniper opens fire on him from a distant rooftop. Unharmed, he taunts them to try again, and security works its way into the press of people. One of Cecily's guards spots Seabook and chases after him, and he only manages to get away with help from his dad. But Mr. Arno is hurt when a mobile suit fires on their car, and now it's Seabook's turn to get them to safety. Back in the F-91 and returning to Reese and the others, Seabook begs his dad to hang in there, but Mr. Arno dies before they make it back to the relative safety of Frontier 1 and the Space Ark. While Reese and the other kids from Frontier 4 grieve Mr. Arno, the official crew berates Seabook, blaming him and his ego for his father's death and openly discussing how he should be disciplined. They are interrupted by the arrival of officers from the Federation garrison. Leili is being promoted to full captain. Her ragtag crew have been surprisingly effective, and they need every ship and mobile suit they can find. The Federation has intelligence that the Crossbone Vanguard plans to use some kind of new machine to exterminate everyone in the colony. A test run before unleashing the same massacre on the Lunar and Terran populations. Back in Cosmo Babylon, Theo arrives at the palace, Cecily's mother Nadia in tow. How and why she came to be there is unclear, but she intends to meet with her ex-husband, Iron Mask. When they spot Iron Mask and Cecily leaving a military council, Nadia charges forward, despite Theo's warning to wait for a better moment. She tries to convince her daughter to leave, but Bera, cold and formal, refuses and walks away. Theo, silent this whole time, drops to the floor, dead by mysterious causes, and guards close in around Nadia, her fate uncertain. By now, the Crossbone Vanguard has ousted the Federation forces from Frontier 2 and Frontier 3, leaving only those on Frontier 1 to oppose them. As the Vanguard forces prepare to mop up this last bit of resistance, Cecily, still training under Lieutenant Zabine, will launch with his unit. In a private moment, she questions Zabine about a mysterious Vanguard ship known as the Zarmuth Gar. It's to be part of the operation, but Cecily suspects there's more to it. Zabine doesn't know the answer, but mentions a code name, Bug, that may be linked to the ship's secret purpose. In love with Zabine and unable to cope with her jealousy over the attention and special treatment he gives Cecily, Vanguard squad leader Anna Marie slips away from the rest of the recon squadron and defects to the Federation. Some amount of time passes. The data Anna Marie provided to the Federation allows them to better prepare their defenses, and a small fleet is waiting when Crossbone Vanguard attacks. Even so, they aren't able to fully block the enemy force. 
the advance units punch through and head straight into the colony. While the space arc retreats toward the port, Seabook, Birgit, and Anna Marie launch to cover its escape. And in the city below, Dr. Monica Arno spots the F-91 flying overhead and wonders whether there's some way she can get aboard the space arc. Zabine's elite squadron, with Cecily among them, leads the vanguard attack and smashes through the Federation lines. As Federation forces fall back in disarray, Anna Marie breaks through the vanguard formation and charges directly at Zabine in a suicide attack. Their beam sabers locked together, he is able to distract her for just long enough. Anna Marie dies alone. Thick clouds, Minovsky particles, and artillery fire from forces on the ground separate Cecily and her wingmen from the rest of her squadron, and in the confusion they stumble into Seabook. He makes quick work of the guards, but Cecily holds her own against the Gundam. The two friends dogfight through the clouds, entirely ignorant of the identity of their opponent. That is, until the two mobile suits clash and are close enough for the pilots to hear each other's voices over the open comms circuit. Cecily, who has wanted to get away from the Ronas for some time now but felt isolated and trapped, was now reunited with her friends. She surrendered and returned with Seabook to the space arc. The mood aboard is tense. Many among the crew blame Cecily for her part in the war, but Seabook and the other kids who escaped Frontier 4 are happy to see their old friend again, whatever her name may be. This segment of the movie opens with one of the more infamously confusing transitions, where we go directly from Seabook piloting the F-91 for the first time to him in disguise, having infiltrated Cosmo Babylon, or Frontier 4, uh, and standing outside of the bakery where Cecily used to live. On the one hand, it becomes very clear by the end of this section that he stole the F-91 and ran off to Frontier 4 by himself without permission. But there is a way a narrative can play out when you are supposed to not know these things and piece them together by watching it. There's a certain, you know, a vibe, a feel that a movie has when it has that kind of internal mystery. Also, the fact that we never see the F-91 in the colony or on the exterior of the colony. Like, where did he leave it? Where is it hidden? How is he getting back and forth? <laughs> like, Right. This is clearly not the sort of situation where you are supposed to be piecing it together as you go along. You're supposed to come in knowing these things. The movie expects you to, and the fact that it doesn't actually provide you the information necessary to do so leaves the audience feeling rather on the back foot. What bothers me somewhat more is not knowing how much time has elapsed. Yes. When they do the transition, part of what makes it so unsettling, especially chronally, is that they do a kind of establishing pan for the place. They don't do that for the time. And when you get a shot that establishes place but not time, your brain, or at least my brain, thinks, oh, this is happening at roughly the same time as what we just saw, but in a different place. Whereas here, um, both have been changed, but only the change in place is conveyed to you. One of my biggest frustrations with F91 is the feeling that when they've cut material from the plot, they've cut things that I really wanted to see. <laughs> For example, when the story is unmoored from time in this way, Cecily's level of desperation feels kind of extreme. It's like, 
why is she thinking about suicide? Why hasn't she tried to get away? Because we have not been shown her degree of isolation. We have not been shown the amount of pressure her family is putting on her to step up and sort of be a full member of the Rona family. We've seen a handful of meetings that were pretty chill, <laughs> and then some time passes and cut to her chopping off her hair, trying to decide what to do. And the thing is, it's not that much time, at least if you go by the official timeline, which oh, no. for reasons I'll establish later, we shouldn't go by, but it's the best we've got under the circumstances. So the official timeline places the uh, Cosmo Babylonia Declaration speech at March 26th. The original attack was March 16th, so it's been 10 days since the beginning of the movie. Wow, okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. Seabook's infiltration probably happens on either the 24th or the 25th, so that either the day before or two days before the declaration ceremony. Um, and then is the ceremony, which is to say the parade, the day after he sees Cecily? Unclear. <laughs> the explanation for... What happened here? What happened in that gap between the end of the last scene and the beginning of this one also helps us to figure out when Seabook would have gotten into the colony, how long he was there. Because here's what happened. In that gap of time, during that cut between those two scenes, a Jupiter Energy Fleet transport ship, the Thousandth Jupiter, arrived in the Earth sphere, was attacked and captured by the Crossbone Vanguard, and the captain of that ship then agreed to work with them. In fact, if you remember during the declaration speech, there is a, a quick shot of the crowd and we see an older couple and the man is wearing a kind of uniform. He's kind of bald. Um, you probably remember this. They rather stand out as the most like designed characters in the crowd. That's the captain of the thousandth Jupiter who would have been a significant character if this whole subplot had been retained. Seabook snuck aboard the thousandth Jupiter and used it to infiltrate Frontier 4. Huh. Those events happened on the 24th. The declaration is on the 26th. So Seabook snuck in either on the 24th or the 25th, met with Cecily in the evening, uh, and then on the 26th, he's at the ceremony. He could be there for three days, maybe two days. Okay. Um, he might have already met up with his dad. Again, it's kind of unclear. Right. The interactions between him and his dad make it seem sometimes like they had met up beforehand and they had planned to get away from the march together and sometimes like they just happened to run into each other by chance. Right. Another couple of points that appear to have been elided from the movie are things like, why does Cecily send her guards to find Seabook? Is, is this a ploy on her part to like, maintain the illusion that Seabook was just a like a burglar who broke in some obsessed fan or <laughs> or is this one of those situations where like she has won the loyalty of her guards and they're working for her and not the family like the movie is gesturing at some side plots here that we don't actually get is she hoping that if they capture him she can get him to just join her in Cosmo Babylonia <laughs> is there a possibility that this could have played out in reverse with Seabook being captured and joining Cecily instead of the other way around and I was very frustrated by the cut during the chase scene where we see Mr. Arno's little car van get hit by a missile from a mobile suit, take shelter in this underpass. The mobile suit obviously cannot follow it into the underpass, but we see its legs over uh, in the road. 
But then how they get from wrecked car in an underpass with a mobile suit blocking the exit to inside the F-91 flying back to Frontier 1, total mystery. <laughs> Didn't bother me that much. I assume that underpass leads directly to the mobile suit hangar. The special mobile suit hangar they only use for infiltrators who are trying to escape quickly. It gets like special priority and stuff. No, I, what I actually assume is that whatever scene would have gone there that involved them getting back to the F-91 would also have involved the thousandth Jupiter. And the problem, the reason that they cut all of this, is that the thousandth Jupiter had not yet been designed when Okoara got sick. Right. And they just, they didn't have time to do it. So they just cut it. And I guess the inertia of the production was such that by August 1990, when they made the decision to cut all the thousandth Jupiter stuff, they couldn't come up with something new from scratch to replace it. They just had to cut it and keep moving on. I find this explanation a little unsatisfying though, personally, because they already have a design for a Jupiter Energy Fleet ship. Going all the way back to Zeta, they have designs for that. They could have, and I think really should have, just used the old one. So what if it's like a 30, 40, 50 year old ship? Old ships remain in service, it's fine. But clearly the old ship's problem really bothered them because I know um, at the very beginning of the movie when the Crossbone mobile suits attack, there are a bunch of Federation ships like moored in the colony that they destroy. Those are all very old ships based on old designs because again, the team didn't have enough resources to design new ones. Um, and this bothered them so much that they came up with a whole explanation for like, oh, the ships don't function anymore, but they've been permanently moored here to serve as kind of like extra office space for the Federation. <laughs> they came up with a whole explanation. I think they just should have gone with it. Just whatever. You're still using Jagans. You can still use Salamis Kais, and you can still use Jupiter's class ships. I don't know. Maybe there were other factors. I can't blame them for the choices they made under these extraordinary conditions. My similar parallel rant would be that once they knew they weren't going to make a show and were making a movie, they should have cut the number of characters like in half. Yeah. Too many characters. We know too little about them. There's not enough time for characterization. There's so much repetition in the movie as a whole, but in this section especially. If they had had the time to kind of plan around it and change it, I assume that having fewer characters would make animation easier and cheaper and faster. It would certainly decrease some of my confusion as a viewer <laughs> and would leave more time for characterization of the characters you leave in. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, instead of doing the Crossbone Vanguard Ace Pilot defects to the Space Arc storyline twice with Anna Marie and Cecily, just do it once. Just do one of those characters and give them twice as much time. Actually show us something. Yeah, they set up early on that Anna Marie is jealous, but the defection f still feels as though it comes out of nowhere because we never see Zabine encourage her in any way. We never hear anybody mention, oh, they used to be together and he broke it off with her or she approached him and he rejected her. What it looks like is she has this big crush and has had it for a long time and he maybe doesn't even have any idea. And yet she's still so jealous that she defects yeah. from this military she's been in for some time 
uh, to the other side that she ostensibly hates. Uh, <laughs> Even though she's a high-ranking officer? Yeah, I mean, we'll talk a lot more about her when we're focusing on characters, but she's introduced at about 45 minutes into the movie. She dies at about 90 minutes through the movie. But I would be shocked if she was on screen for more than, let's say, four minutes in that interim time. From a pure plot perspective, the time crunch and the number of characters means that some characters' lines, some characters' stated motivations or unstated feel a bit like they come out of nowhere. Or you get somewhat clunky dialogue that is sort of attempting to explain a person's motivations because there was no opportunity to establish through events uh, why they feel a certain way or why they're acting a certain way. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You were mentioning earlier that the movie seems to be cutting like the things we really want to see, these very potentially interesting storylines in order to make room for just sort of like ticking the narrative boxes on way too many characters and way too many plot threads. I assume, like I'm, I'm kind of imagining this now, but I assume that Nadia Fairchild, Rona, gets from Frontier 1 to Frontier 4 the same way Seabook does. I assume she also infiltrates the Thousandth Jupiter. Maybe she even meets up with Seabook. They have a moment talking about Cecily. They together sneak onto the Thousandth Jupiter and then each go off to do their different things. I think that'd be really interesting. Nadia seems like a really interesting character. But instead, we see her briefly on the space arc doing nebulously something, for some reason trying to avoid being noticed by people. Then we see her sneaking into the palace on Frontier 4, and then she confronts Iron Mask, she gets arrested and taken away, and that's it. That's the end of her storyline. And Theo is sneaking her in, but I don't know why, because I would assume that even if she is, you know, the prodigal daughter, that her family would want to see her. They have been looking for her after all, or at least they said they were. Mm -hmm. I also realized, thanks to this scene, that I was wrong earlier. I had thought that Nadia left Theo because she found out he was still loyal to Cosmo Babylonia. In this scene, what she actually says is that she left because she thought Cecily would be safer that way. So she might have thought her family were close to finding her and that they weren't going to look for Cecily and Theo, but they would look for her, and so splitting up would make everybody safer. Sort of uh, sort of unclear <laughs> why she leaves him or why he is the person she goes to when she needs to get into this place. And, uh, and then Theo's death, which is a real, real Isolina vibes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I think Iron Mask just hated him to death. Iron Mask is like, I wish I could kill you with my mind. Oh, wait, I can. Cyber new type noises. A lot of the questions that I wrote down about this section of the movie boil down to how did X person find out Y piece of information and when? How did Cecily know about the Zamothgar? Yeah. Or uh, when Dwight is talking to Seabook about possibly defecting over to the other side, to Cosmo Babylonia, have Dwight and the other teens heard about this massacre? that is supposed to be happening at some point soon? How does Dwight know that the captain is looking for an out? Or is that pure speculation? <laughs> Let's revisit that massacre for a second. When the Federation proper soldiers, when the, the lieutenant from the beginning shows up again and he's got Cosmo with him and um, Elm, the leader of the local resistance, 
They allude to a massacre that has like taken place at one of the other colonies. They say that the Crossbone Vanguard wiped out a colony. Um, presumably that was either Frontier 2 or 3, or they're lying. Who who knows? Like, what is happening around the edges of this story? But they also claim to have intelligence about this upcoming planned attack, which even their own, even the professional like engineers aboard this ship blurt out, oh, I thought that was a rumor you all started <laughs> to turn people against Cosmo Babylonia. So even their own side doesn't trust their intelligence. But regardless, they have heard something about it. But then they also, when Anna Marie comes over, she brings this data that is apparently very useful. Uh, and it's implied, I think, that the defenses they set up, uh, that their ability to set up a more coordinated defense of the colony is thanks to Anna Marie's data that she brings, the intelligence that she brings when she defects. But how much time elapses <laughs> between her defecting and the beginning of that attack? Because the first time I watched this movie, I thought it can't have been more than a couple of hours. And then the second time, it's like, has it actually been days or a week? And there are a lot of details in the movie that conflict <laughs> when one tries to find the answer to that question. So according to the official timeline, the proclamation of Cosmo Babylonia was on the 26th. The bug attack in Frontier 1 is on the 30th. So there is a like three or four day gap in here. We know that Cecily is captured before the bug attack. So Cecily's capture is probably on the 29th, maybe early in the day on the 30th, but I'm, I'm thinking the 29th, or perhaps even before that, which pushes Anna Marie's uh, defection back a little bit to maybe the 27th, the 28th, Probably there have been a couple of days passing here. My two big conflicting bits of information that stood out to me were one, Dwight mentions that the kids have gotten really fond of Anna Marie, which probably not possible in a mere couple of hours before a major battle. <laughs> she probably wouldn't spend any time with the kids in that circumstance. If she's been there a couple of days, yeah, okay, maybe. However, before she leaves Cosmo Babylonia, Zabine is standing there in the hangar holding this bouquet of flowers for Cecily. And the dialogue in that scene and the setup of that scene really feel as though, okay, the recon team is going to go out, but the rest of us are getting ready because in a couple of hours we're going to be following them, not a couple of days later. And it sounds kind of ridiculous when you say out loud, yeah, he brought this bouquet and then several days later, He's still carrying the same bouquet or maybe bought another one at like, <laughs> he just keeps bringing Cecily flowers and carrying them around everywhere. No wonder Anna Marie is jealous. It feels a bit as though people working on different parts of this movie weren't all up on how those parts connected. That, that, um, that seems like it might have happened. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm going to get real petty for a second. We haven't been already. <laughs> I think we have been very fair. Tough but fair. Yeah. That's us. Yeah. All right, I'm going to get real petty for a second, though. <laughs> okay. In this section, Seabook wears three distinct jackets. <laughs> when he first infiltrates Frontier 4, he's wearing like a red jacket that when we watched it, uh, I remember you mentioned, reminded you of Akira. When he infiltrates the palace, he's wearing like a construction worker jacket. Uh, it's a brown jacket he's wearing, and it's over a white turtleneck. This is important. The following day, or maybe two days, when he's at the big speech, parade, proclamation thing, and then when he's escaping, 
he's wearing a different jacket. It's more like a grayish blue, and he's wearing a different shirt. He's still wearing that different outfit when he gets back to Frontier One, uh, and it's that third jacket which he sort of throws off his bed and which he sees a bunch of strands of Cecily's red hair fall out of. Those hairs could not be in that jacket. He wasn't wearing that jacket when she cut her hair. He was wearing a different shirt. They couldn't have gotten from his shirt to the jacket. Unacceptable. (laughs) Zero out of 10, movie ruined. I'm glad I didn't notice that, but I do understand your frustration. Uh, My one last, hang on a second, moment was our first introduction to the real-life Mrs. Arno, Seabook and Reese's mother, uh, who seems to know that her kids are on the space arc, or at least that some kids are on the space arc. But how? And what has she been doing? Where did she come from? They're really just redoing the Nadia sneaking onto the space arc thing again, but with Monica. And we'll talk a lot more about Mrs. Arno later. There's a lot of interesting stuff there, but the fact that her kids haven't seen her in like a decade (laughs) (laughs) would, one thinks, imply that wherever she's been working is very far away or very difficult to get to and from. And yet, boom, here she is. You know, I do wonder how long it's been since her kids have seen her. Time is, um... Not their strong suit. Um, According to the official timeline, the F-91 was brought to Frontier 1 to receive a new biocomputer just three months before the movie starts. So we don't know when Dr. Arno left to go work on that computer, uh, but the F-91 got the biocomputer pretty recently. Yeah, it's just that the way her kids talk about her is like she left and never returned. Right. It's not that she's away a lot, it's that she abandoned them (laughs) and that they have finally managed to forget about her. So yeah, her presence is a mystery. But Reese Arno is not that old and was definitely old enough to learn Cat's Cradle from her mother before the mother left. And yet the dad's little dying speech makes it sound like Reese was probably still a baby or a toddler when Monica left. How old is Reese? Uh, According to official sources, Reese is 10 years old. Okay. I admit my mom's been away for a decade comment was an exaggeration, but uh, she's clearly been away for some time. And the emotional tenor of the whole thing implies that it's not as though she visits frequently. (laughs) Right. There have not been any Zoom calls. Even though we know Universal Century Gundam has video messaging. With her military connections, Mrs. Monica Arno is able to get past the crowds of terrified refugees into the spaceport and to the space arc. The reunion with her children is painful. Their feelings of hurt and betrayal, her desire to justify herself, and she is horrified to discover that her own son is piloting the F-91, though a crew member points out her hypocrisy. Every pilot is someone's child. Seabook interrupts them. All of this can wait. Right now, they have to focus on survival. Zabine and a handful of survivors from his unit fall back on Crossbone Vanguard's beachhead at one end of the colony and find the Zamuthgar moored there. Technicians have reactivated the colony's old fusion reactor and are using it to power something aboard the ship. 
Zabine suspects it involves the mysterious bugs. When he attempts to land on the Zamuthgar for repairs, he is rebuffed. Iron Mask and his aide, Gilet, will only say that the ship has some kind of special, secret mission. Loaded with refugees, the space arc leaves Frontier One for the moon, even as scattered remnants of both forces continue to fight in and outside the colony. But the awful secret of the bugs is finally revealed. Released into the colony, these disc-shaped drones seek out and obliterate humans. With their saw-like teeth, their guns, their explosives, or their very weight. They cut their way into homes and shelters, crush soldiers in the street, fire on parents trying to shelter their children. The resistance tries to fight back, but they stand little chance. Gile estimates that the colony's three million inhabitants will be exterminated in just two or three days. Iron Mask is pleased. If the test goes well, he plans to immediately release bugs on Earth and on the moon. Seabook and Birgit, joined now by Cecily, return to the colony. Despite their skill and their cutting-edge mobile suits, they struggle against the swarm of bugs attacking from every direction. Birgit is overwhelmed, his mobile suit gradually taken to pieces before smaller bugs break into the cockpit and kill him. Standing back to back, fighting for their lives and to protect each other, a flash of understanding passes between Seabook and Cecily, and they realize what they must do. The bugs were Iron Mask's plan. He needs to die. Pushing the F-91 to its limits, Seabook cuts a path through the colony, drawing the bugs to him somehow, his beam sabers a deadly whirlwind, destroying every enemy drone in his path. The way clear, Seabook and Cecily leave the colony and attack the crossbone ship just outside, the Gar Prow. The Zamuthgar, however, disengages from the battle. Sensing Cecily, Iron Mask orders his personal mobile armor, the Reflesia, readied for launch. This is family business, after all. Against ordinary Federation ships and mobile suits, the Reflesia does the work of an entire fleet. Once Iron Mask finds Seabok and Cecily, the Reflesia opens up like a flower in bloom and unfurls countless vine-like tentacles. Cecily, fighting in close, is bound up in these tentacles, and Iron Mask leaves his own cockpit, rips the door from the Vignagina, and flings Cecily into open space as punishment for her disobedience. An enraged Seabook pushes the F-91 beyond its limits, moving so quickly that the Gundam leaves afterimages in its wake, afterimages with mass that confuse Iron Mask's enhanced senses and allow Seabook to dart past the mobile armor's defenses and blast it at point-blank range, destroying the Reflesia and Iron Mask both. Crossbone Vanguard's mobile suit squadrons are retreating to regroup, and for the space arc, the battle is over. Seabook is desperate to find Cecily, but no one can detect her through all the space junk, battle debris, and Minovsky particle interference. With her knowledge of the F-91 and its biocomputer, Monica Arno is able to help her son use his new type powers to draw Cecily to him. Fighting down growing panic, he finally catches sight of a single lily from the bouquet that had been attached to Cecily's mobile suit. She must be nearby. He leaves the Gundam behind, and with just veneers to propel him, goes into space and finds Cecily. He is holding her close when she regains consciousness, and they embrace, safe for now. No one can say what lies ahead, 
The Crossbow Vanguard, Cosmo Babylonia, and the rest of Cecily's family are still out there. This is only the beginning. Right off the top, yes, it's very silly that the F-91 is leaving behind afterimages with masks. Yes, there is an explanation. Yes, I do know it. No, I'm not going to share it because I'm still trying to get Iraj on the podcast to try to come up with a scientific explanation for it. And uh, I want to save that for that discussion. Well, if light is a particle and particles have mass, even though it's very, very small and... It's not that, but that is a good guess. That's about as close as I can get off the top of my head, but... uh... Well, look forward to it, listeners. If we can't get Iraj, I promise I will reveal it before the end of this season. This section has some rather confusing hints at different factions. For instance, Zabine seems very upset about the appearance of the Reflesia and that he didn't know it existed, but it's unclear if he knows anything about the bugs other than the code name. Mm-hmm. Does he know what the bugs were for? <laughs> what they just did? It seems not. I mean, he seems pretty horrified when he does figure out what they're doing. Um, and he has a whole line about like, if I didn't know about it, then Meitzer must not have known about it either. This is all Iron Mask's initiative. And um, I don't necessarily follow his logic there. I think Meitzer probably knows lots of things that Zabine doesn't know about the Crossbone Vanguard's operations. Well, this is, uh, I have to skip ahead a little bit, but there's a massive amount of info dump in that final fight that feels as if it ought to be revelatory. It ought to be a big reveal. Mm -hmm. And instead, it's just dialogue over this fight and doesn't get any further development. For instance, that Iron Mask is a cyber new type and was created a cyber new type by Meitzer didn't know that. (laughs) Uh, Iron Mask reveals that Meitzer is the one who told him he needed to kill nine-tenths of humanity. And so all of that sweet old man, I didn't want them to kill anybody, I told them not to kill any civilians, it's all horse pucky. (laughs) It's all a facade, it's all a lie. Mm -hmm. That ought to be a big deal. Given that we know Cecily has fond feelings for her grandfather, she even kind of tried to stand up for her grandfather when she first came aboard the space arc and people were criticizing Cosmo Babylonia. Yeah, this feels like they're trying to serve two masters and not succeeding at either because they both want to make this a compelling climax to the movie, right? It has to feel like something is being accomplished here, which is, I think, why you get all of this stuff about like, Iron Mask is the root of all evil. Iron Mask is the bad one. This is all Iron Mask's plan. The bugs are his thing. Meitzer didn't know about it. So that defeating Iron Mask at the end of the movie can feel like an actual accomplishment. But at the same time, they are still trying to set up that sequel. Like, this is only the beginning. They had plans for this to be a jumping off point and that they would then do the whole series that they had originally planned to do. They're trying to make it final and conclusive, but also open-ended and intriguing. I feel as if it's a common enough story structure to have your protagonists succeed at the end of the movie. Yay, hooray, what a relief, huzzah. And then to reveal shortly after that, uh uh-oh, what they thought was the end is not. There is, in fact, this other enemy or bigger (laughs) enemy 
lying in wait. But this one falls a little flat, and it does feel as though it would be very easy to miss the stuff about Mitzer. And yeah, the bugs are still out there, and Cosmo Babylonia is still out there, but both the sense of victory and the sense of threat don't come through all that strongly, I think. Yeah, no, I <laughs> I mean, the bugs are horrifying, right? Oh, like, yeah. The bugs absolutely do convey that sense of this is a horrifying evil. This is a huge escalation. This is a huge threat that must be overcome. But they don't actually nail the landing on defeating the bugs, right? We see Seabook destroy a whole bunch of bugs in admittedly a pretty cool sequence. But is that all the bugs? We then see Cecily destroy the Garprow, but unless you know a lot about this movie, you don't know the significance of that. Right. So this was another point where I was very confused. Early on, my understanding from the dialogue was that the Zamuthgar was what was going to be hooked up to this old reactor, that the Zamuthgar needed all this power. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Then they come out. There's a ship there. Obviously, I think it's the Zamuthgar, which... I thought up until that point was the ship carrying the bugs. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Cecily shoots at it, and then they start talking about the Gar Prow instead. What what is this other ship? Where did it come from? What is it doing there? Tom had helped me with the recaps by assembling a bunch of notes and <laughs> slipped in some information that's not from the movie. Apparently, the Gar Prow is the factory that was making the bugs. Yes. So the Gar Prow was part of the Zamath Gar. It was the prow of the Zamath Gar, but oh. it gets detached <laughs> and left behind. <laughs> it is like an autonomous factory that keeps producing these bugs while the Zamath Gar retreats to a safe distance. Yeah, that is never adequately conveyed within the movie. Look, there is one line when Gillet and Iron Mask are talking to each other. When one of them mentions that if the bugs reproduce as planned, then such and such will happen, which clearly, I mean, <laughs> obviously conveys to you that the Gar Prow is a factory which is producing bugs. Uh, so, no, because he says like reproduce or multiply. It makes it sound as if they uh, make more of themselves or reproduce organically in some way. <laughs> and so I was sitting there wondering, oh, what exactly does he mean by that? Is there some way for bugs to self-replicate? So I actually am kind of making a logical leap in assuming that he's talking about the Garprow and its manufacturing facilities. Because the other thing about the bugs is that bugs come in different varieties. There is the large mama bug, but the mama bug contains smaller bugs, smaller copies of itself that it launches, that it dispatches to go and attack smaller targets. So when smaller bugs break into Birgit's cockpit, that's because they've been released from one of these mother bugs. I don't know if the mother bugs, like, produce the mini bugs inside themselves, or if they have a limited amount, like ammo. So they might, in fact, be reproducing just as you thought. And maybe that's, like, revealed in the novel somewhere, but if it is, I'm, I'm not aware of it. I was also expecting something a little bit more science fiction-y, because... All the hinting at the bugs ahead of time by those characters in the know describes them as only hurting people, not harming the infrastructure, not harming the colony. Whereas clearly, these bugs do significant physical damage to the colony, not on the scale that, say, bombing the whole place would. Mm -hmm. But it also occurred to me later, 
the kind of damage the bugs do could be attributed to any of the fighting that's been going on. There's a certain amount of plausible deniability, assuming nobody is alive who saw the bugs in action. I think also part of it is themes. I know we said we weren't going to focus on that stuff this episode, but there is like a theme of people behaving like machines and suppressing your human desires. And with Iron Mask as a character, we get this idea of a person turned into an unfeeling machine or maybe a feeling machine. So I think the idea of bugs as like autonomous people killing machines ties into that overall thematic structure. Okay. Yeah, I could see that. This section is more self-contained than some of the other ones, fewer locations, less time covered. Like the opening, it is happening in the course of a single, basically uninterrupted day. So there are a lot fewer places where we can lose the thread or become confused, but I am deeply curious about Monica Arno and just how much she knows about new types, actually. <laughs> Particularly because of this final scene where she's helping Seabook find Cecily. She's reconfiguring the biocomputer, and she mentions a Saikomu, which has never been mentioned in the movie before, mm -hmm. and is also telling him how to, like, calm himself and how to think about his own energy and Cecily's energy in order to find her. And that feels an awful lot like she knows what she's talking about. Yeah. It raises a lot of questions about what a biocomputer is, how it functions. How generic is Saikomu technology at this point? Is it, like, weird that the F-91 has it, or does everybody have them now? Throughout the movie, there have been all of these references to new types and how, like, nobody really remembers new types. They're this old forgotten thing from the long-ago days of 30 years prior which doesn't seem like enough time for this kind of thing to be completely forgotten. But I guess if there were never very many new types and they all died violent deaths in battle at a young age, I guess it's plausible that they could have just be forgotten like that. Or people just stopped talking about it in that particular way. Uh, also, people only... Well, <laughs> we have a bit of a chicken and egg problem here. All the Gundam shows are about warfare. And so if people only find new types because of their battle ability. If people only find new types during wartime and they've had a period of peace up until F-91 happens, mm -hmm. then there are probably lots of new types out there, but nobody's ever identified them because they've never been in a situation where their abilities were obvious. I mean, that kind of goes back to stuff that Char was saying all the way back in First Gundam about how it's only fighting, it's only war and conflict that brings out your new type abilities. While this part is significantly more straightforward than some of the others, there are a couple of questions and a couple of more confusing bits. One sort of very important big picture thing happening in the background is that the Federation has sent a fairly significant fleet from the moon, which seems to be the Federation stronghold. This is basically an entirely space-based civilization. Like there are some people in the, on Earth, but it's not really a factor in anything. The Federation stronghold is the moon and they've sent reinforcements but those reinforcements get intercepted by vanguard forces. At one point in the movie, they point to a formation of mobile suits and say those are the ones who intercepted the reinforcements. At another point, it seems like it was the Rafflesia that did it. Maybe it was both. This actually brings up another thing I wondered about, which is, and I, I assume there's some explanation for this that just never got spoken, but if Crossbone Vanguard is already at the moon, then they are 
absolutely close enough to Earth to pose a real risk to Federation higher-ups on the Earth. And so their former attitude of, oh, we're not at risk, we're just going to wait and see what happens, doesn't make any sense anymore. Which may be why they sent reinforcements, right? But that transition from, oh, this is a faraway battle that we don't really care about, to, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no, <laughs> never uh, gets filled in. There's no intermediary step in there. And it also raises questions for me about where exactly the frontier colonies are. Ah, that can be answered fairly easily. Okay, because clearly they thought they were far enough away that, you know, the core population, the people living on the moon and Earth didn't have to worry. I mean, you say that, but the frontier side is in the location of the former side four, which is to say it's at the Lagrange point between the moon and the Earth. Oh. So it's actually so it's actually the Lagrange point closest to the Earth and I think closest to the moon and therefore the one that threatens both of them the most. My theory sort of of the big political stuff, and I'll talk about this more right. next week, but my theory is that we're sort of looking at the Federation on the verge of breaking up into a new warring states period mm. where the central authority has become so weak and so lethargic that it no longer has the juice to keep everything together. Mm -hmm. There are still powerful Federation forces out there, but they're not really loyal to or under the control of the central command. That what we are seeing and what we'll see if things continue on the same trajectory is local power holders, whether they're Federation military officials or corporate... Colony corporation or... Yeah, or wealthy businessmen like the Buchrona family are going to start carving out their own individual pieces of space. And so when the Federation forces on the moon send a fleet to kick the Crossbone Vanguard out of the frontier side, they're doing so for their own reasons and to maintain the security of their own little fiefdom on the moon. One other possible partial explanation for all of this uh, would, of course, be at the very beginning of the movie, they describe Crossbone Vanguard as pirates. So it's almost like they think it's a small terrorist cell or space bandits. They do not have enough intelligence on this organization. They do not know enough about them to realize how well-resourced they are or how big a threat they are. Or that they have collaborators within the Colony Corporation, collaborators within the frontier side. Which gets hinted at as well. So a couple of times, yeah. That will be interesting to talk about. Another question that I don't have a solid answer for is um, at the end of the film, when Seabook and Cecily are fighting with Iron Mask, they're doing so in the ruins of a colony. What colony? I mean, there was a side here that was mostly destroyed during the One Year War, so maybe that one. But maybe this is debris from earlier battles around Frontier 1, maybe it's debris from Frontier 2 or 3. Earlier on, they talk about the Crossbone Vanguard having already destroyed a colony. Is this wreckage from that destroyed colony? Was that one of the other frontier colonies? Big question mark. It does make for a pretty cool environment for the final fight, but it also sort of confuses the landscape in my brain. And now finally at the end, I want to bring up what I consider to be the biggest reason why we shouldn't trust the official timeline. Normally, it would be really hard to track the passage of time based on the phases of the moon because depending on which side you're in, which Lagrange point you're at, the moon would look totally different. And that's the case for all of them except this one. 
because the frontier side is between the Earth and the Moon. So the view of the Moon from the frontier side should be identical to the view of the Moon from Earth. And the movie begins and closes with what appear to be full moons. Which means the official timeline, which has about 14 days passing from the beginning to the end of the movie, can't possibly be right. Because 14 days would take you roughly from a full moon to a new moon, not from a full moon to a full moon. The minimum amount of time this movie could take is a month. Or no time at all, but that's ridiculous. Unfortunately, it's really hard to make out whether they've accurately depicted the transition of the moon phases throughout the movie. So my initial plan of using the moon to determine exactly when different things happened um, didn't work out. But if we're going based on what's in the film as our primary source, there is no way that this took 14 days. I feel as though that phases of the moon thing falls into the category of uh, things that science fiction and fantasy writers hate having to keep track of. <laughs> Just reminded of George R. R. Martin wishing that he had never mentioned anyone's eye color ever. <laughs> or the genders of horses. Yep. <laughs> um, especially because uh, if you think about the way storyboarding is often done, indicating the moon is there is not the same as indicating how much of the moon is illuminated. Uh, and you probably wouldn't even bother to do phases of the moon unless you wanted a very particular visual look that you felt would be enhanced by that. They also use the moon a lot visually in this movie as a, a backdrop against which to kind of highlight certain things. The paleness of it makes a lot of stuff pop the way it wouldn't in space, even if it's small. And so I think certain artistic considerations are probably the reason why the moon is just kind of always full. <laughs> just, yeah, you know. Yeah. I mean, you're right. But. But. But if we're playing this game of treating it as though it were a real thing that had happened. As though it has some kind of internal logic, at least. Right. We are obliged to come up with explanations that allow us to harmonize all of the disparate and conflicting information within the movie. Maybe in UC-91, they have decided that the moon should be fully illuminated at all times and have set up lighting in space <laughs> so that the moon can always be fully illuminated. I mean, we know from First Gundam that they had that massive mirror-based solar system. Maybe they've replicated that, but just so that the moon is always full, which I'm sure would have no negative consequences whatsoever. Next time on episode 7.5, Noblesse Oblige, we continue our research and discussion of Gundam F91 and Being a Jerk to Children, Gilded Cage, It's Hard to Be Brave Alone, Queen Bera, She's Just Like Us, No One Cared Who I Was Before I Put on the Mask, Callous Indifference, the compromises we make. I'm shocked, shocked to find nepotism in this aristocracy. And the tree is a metaphor. This is only the beginning.
Mobile Suit Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Tom and Nina, in scenic New York City, within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people, and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. The recap music is His Last Share of the Stars by Dr. Turtle. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes and on our website, GundamPodcast.com. You can get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram at GundamPodcast, or by email to hosts at GundamPodcast.com. And thank you for listening. With Gundam's international popularity on the rise, there are now more opportunities to share your wrong Gundam opinions than ever before. So get out there and tell some stranger that F91 didn't have a chaotic production cycle that made it impossible for the creators to do their best work. It wasn't an unfocused boondoggle that chased too many different targets and caught none of them. It was cursed by an evil sorcerer for revealing the Gundam's mouth and releasing the demon trapped within. So they all pile into a gun tank and drive in that direction. Is it a gun tank? It is a gun tank. Should I record anyway? We are going to put music over it. Yeah, go ahead. There's actually two mobile suits though, right? Because there's the one Birgit. He's not on it when they come in. He lands later. Anyway, uh... (laughs) Oh, yeah. Are we saying Metzer or Meitzer? That's correct, right? The Japanese is like Begina Gina. Begina Gina? Yeah. So I don't, I can't even begin to tell you how to pronounce that in English. Vigna Gina? Vigna? I think I said Vigna Gina. God. <laughs> um, we can look at what the, how they say it in the dub. I think whatever I said the first time is fine for now. <laughs> I don't know. I won't name it again. <laughs> Vanguard squad leader Anne Marie. They say like Anne Marie. Anne Marie. Anne Marie. While the space arc retreats. <laughs> Jupiter energy flip flip <laughs> oh my god shut up make your dogs behave in English we would say Gillette but gire, gire. I, I think it's jire, jire? In, the, in the Japanese Iron Mask and his aide Jill I really don't know how I should say that. Should I just say Gillette? Should I, should I, I say Gillette? I would just Gilet? say Gillette. Gillette. And you said just now that presumably she's doing this because she wants to rescue her daughter, but what she actually tells 
Theo is that she's there to talk to Iron Mask, that that's why she's come. And her physical reactions in the scene are like she's surprised to see Cecily there and sort of acts impulsively when she sees her daughter. I guess I'm projecting her prior motivations when she was in, when she was getting onto the space arc of looking for her daughter into this scene, but maybe I shouldn't be. Maybe I shouldn't be expecting that what we've seen before has any impact on what we're seeing now. Honk if you like to be a jerk to children. Being a jerk to podcasters. <laughs> You heard it here on MSB first, folks. Nezuko is just ripping off the F91.